but it sure feels that way after being gone so long, so many weeks away from the, the house of the Lord, and then to return over the past few weeks and to worship the Lord with you. It, it is it is wonderful. It's better than anything else. And I'm so glad you're here tonight. Now tonight, finally, we're going to get back to 1 Thessalonians. We've taken quite a long break from it, but we're going to get back into it. And actually, I'm calling tonight's message Back on Track. We're going to get back on track after our long break. But as you remain standing, I want you to hear the Word of God. I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now listen now to God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers." Let's stop right there and have a seat. You know, that verse is going to be kind of a, a, a keystone verse for us tonight as we do something that might seem a little bit uh, frightening as I tell you what we're about to do. I'm going to preach for you tonight from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to cover the entire three and a half chapters of 1 Thessalonians that we've covered up to this point. And, and the reason why is because we've taken such a long break. I realize that we might have forgotten the argument of the book. We might have become a little rusty with some of the, the key passages and key ideas and the core concepts up to this point. And so what I want to do is, in kind of fly-by fashion, get us back on track. Now, I don't know about you. Have you, have you ever uh, gotten off track while you were driving in, in a vehicle? You, you ever taken a wrong turn w without realizing it? Anybody willing to, to raise their hand? And, and so, so uh, a while ago, my, my wife and I, we were out at, the, at the, uh, the coast, and we were coming back, and we had to stop in Astoria on the way back, but we were, we were in a pretty, you know, not a heated conversation, but a serious conversation. We were talking about a lot of things, and on our way back, instead of taking, what, 101 to get back to Astoria, I just kind of kept rolling on, on Highway 4 on the other side of the river, right? And, and so we just were driving and talking and driving and talking and driving and talking, and after about ah, 25 minutes or so past the turn, I just kind of said, oh, no! <laughs> I, I'm on the wrong path. I'm not on track. And, and you know what we had to do? I hated doing it. I hated it so much. We had to drive that 25 minutes backtracking, a total of almost an hour being completely off track. It, it frustrated me to no end, right? Because what are we doing wasting our time? We got so much to do. It was so frustrating. And I... I realize some of you aren't brave enough to admit that you've been off track in your driving, but, but let's not talk about driving. Have you ever been off track in your spiritual life? Have you ever taken a wrong turn in, in your pursuit of Christ and of the things of God? Have you ever gotten maybe farther than 25 minutes down the road and realized, oh, no, I'm not going the right direction. Something's not right here. 
You know, I, re- I realize that there might be some of us in this room tonight that that's exactly where we are right now. We're weeks, months, or maybe years down the wrong road. Some of us, it shows up in our lives in obvious ways. Some of us, no one would even guess. You ever been there? Maybe you're there tonight in a little way. Maybe you're a few steps on the wrong path, and, and, and you, you, maybe you haven't wandered super far, but, but you know there's some selfishness, and like we talked about, some stubbornness and some arrogance and some greed, the things we talked about last week. You know that you're not quite on track, that you're not pursuing the things of God the way you're supposed to, and you're not pursuing the, the Christ the way he's called you to as your Lord. You know, part of why I love 1 Thessalonians It's because I read it and I see it as a model for being on track. In fact, tonight, as we cover chapters one through four and a half, here's the big idea. Very simple. To get back on track, you got to get your attention on God. To, To get back on track, you get back on track, simply put, when God gets your attention. And, and I think the outline of 1 Thessalonians, it, it helps us give God our attention in some very specific and very clear, and if we're honest, very convicting ways. And so let me invite you this evening, wherever you are, whether miles off track or a few steps off track, let me invite you to consider what it looks like for you to, to not go down that path. But, but to get back on track. We're going to do that by, by looking at three core kind of, kind of themes of, of these first few chapters. And here's the first one. The first one is if you want to get back on track, you need to remember God's past faithfulness. If you want to get back on track, you need to remember God's past Faithfulness. Notice, this isn't saying for you to get back on track, you need to remember your past faithfulness. This isn't saying for you to get back on track. It isn't for you to remember how awesome you've done in the past or all the good things you've accomplished or all those times where people have patted you on the back. Let me show you what I mean. If you want to get back on track, here's where Paul starts with the Thessalonians. He reminds them of what God has already done. Look at chapter one with me. Chapter 1 demonstrates that God faithfully lifted you into salvation. Chapter 1 is one giant thankfulness. It's one giant thank you letter. And it's not a thank you letter to the Thessalonians. It's a a thank you letter to God because of the way God had reached down and delivered and rescued and saved these people the same way The same way that if you're here tonight and if you've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have been lifted into salvation. Let's just read all of chapter one together. I'm going to warn you, we're going to read some some large chunks of scripture. And I really want to challenge you, as we read these, do whatever it takes for you to zero your attention. If you're the person that likes to follow on the screen, God bless you, follow on the screen. If you're the person that needs to open up and with your finger follow every word, do that. If you're the person that just needs to close your eyes and allow every word to sink and do that. But, but as we read these long texts of Scripture, don't get lost in your thoughts. Don't drift away. 
allow the scripture to grasp your attention completely. Chapter one, verse one. Here's what Paul writes. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Here's where the thankfulness begins. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know this? Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they, th- these other people around in the surrounding areas, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Look at verse 10. Look at every word here. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is a giant letter. This is, this is a giant thank you letter. And in this letter, Paul, short version, he is saying, I am so thankful for, for the way God has called you to trust in him and to have faith in him. He says, I'm so thankful for God saving you. Look at verses four and five again, if you're, if you're still there. It says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. When we talked about this, we talked about the idea that it it became evident in the lives of the Thessalonians that they had a sincere faith, not because they got worked up emotionally, not because they prayed a prayer but because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that led them to turn away from their old life. Whether it was a life in Judaism where they were, they were trying to earn a kind of approval by God, or whether it was a life as a pagan where they were worshiping a pantheon of gods, all different gods that they thought they could appease. Regardless of what their life looked like, they turned away from their old life. And by the power of the Spirit of God, they turned toward Christ. They experienced this belief in the gospel. And then verses 9 and 10, Paul, in shorthand, he describes the gospel. Verses 9 and 10, he says, if you look halfway through 9, it says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. And here's the gospel. Whom he raised from the dead. It's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It says, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the gospel. 
He describes their faith in the gospel, and he lays out in shorthand the very clear call to the gospel. Here's what he says. He says, God lifted you out of your sinful life. God lifted you out of the wrath to come. God saved you. You remember when God saved you? Do you remember when when you trusted in Christ for the first time? Do you remember when you, when you came to faith? Listen, we, we, we should be careful how we speak about that. When we talk about coming to faith, we don't say things like, yeah, you know, I kind of decided I need a little bit of Jesus in my life. When you came to faith, here, here's what we say. Let me tell you about when Jesus saved me. Let me tell you about when Jesus rescued me. Let me tell you about when Jesus delivered me. Let me tell you about how Jesus, he reached down and he pulled me out of the pin of my wretched, or the pit of my wretchedness and my sin and my selfishness. And he showed me how desperate I am for his saving work. And he lifted me up and he rescued me, not just from my sin, but from his wrath, from his judgment was, that was going to come. Let me tell you about when Jesus Saved me. You, you remember when that happened for you? And last weekend was beautiful. We, we baptized six young people who had made a profession of Christ. You, you remember your baptism? That moment when you publicly confessed that I am now aligning myself with Christ and those around you say that we believe with, with the full conviction of the Holy Spirit that you are now in Christ. This is how you get back on track. Here's how it starts. It starts by you remembering how God has worked in your past, specifically how he has, he has lifted you into salvation. Well, let's, let's look at more of this book, though. As we get into chapter 2, chapter 1 is only 10 verses. We just read them. But, but the second thing you remember is remember that God faithfully loved you through other people. Remember that God faithfully loved you. Not through perfect people, but through other people. Let's, let's take another big chunk, shall we? Let's read verses, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2 again. I want to just call you to attention. I want to call you to focus. Whatever it looks like, don't allow the reading of the Scripture to distract you. Allow your attention to be given fully to this moment. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came to you with words of flattery, or as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. But others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, that, that, was, a, that was a great chunk of scripture. That, that, that alone, I mean, each of these passages, we spent a week on each of them preaching. But, but I, want you to, I want you to notice the, the way Paul describes himself. I want you to see the, the, the pictures. Remember we talked about the pictures Paul paints that demonstrate the kind of care that he had for these people in Thessalonica. He, he says, we care for you like a mother. We, 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 we care for you like a brother working alongside of you. He, said, he says, I, I treated you as a father. He says, I was willing to share not only the gospel, but my very life. He's calling to their remembrance. He's calling into their memory the reality that, that Paul didn't just come and drop a bunch of gospel tracts and say, turn or burn, sucker, and then leave. Paul stopped and looked at them and loved them. Do you remember who loved you? Do you remember the people that, that you found out years later were praying for you constantly? to trust in Christ. How many times have I heard a story from someone who came, comes to faith and then later they find out their grandparents were praying for them every single day when they had their heart closed off to the Lord, praying for them to come to know Jesus. Who was it that's loved you? I think there's another picture of this. Go down to verse 17. Verse 17, this describes another kind of perspective of the kind of care and the kind of love, the way God worked in their life by giving them loving people. Look, look at what it says, verses 17 through 20. But since we were torn up away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy of crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. But Paul simply says, you, you realize the most important thing in my life is not how big of a crowd I draw, not, not how big of a paycheck I receive, not, not how fancy my clothes are or how fun my vacation is. He says, you realize the most important thing in my life is you. I remember after I had uh, come to faith and, and a number of years went by before I started understanding what it meant to follow Christ. I remember when I started to, in earnest follow Christ, and I, I had a pastor that was a number of years older than me, very busy man, lots of responsibilities, busy schedule, and, and when I started to ask him questions about how do I follow Christ and how do I grow in Christ, this man, he would meet with me every week for breakfast in his busy schedule. He would answer any question I had about life, about love, about God, about the scripture. 
He even picked up the tab every single week. He just consistently loved me. He consistently cared. He was consistently there. Who, who's that person for you? I want you to realize if you're in this room today and you say, I, I don't know if anyone loves me. I don't know if there's anyone that cares for me. I'm just going to be really honest. I know 99% of the people in this room. I have decent conversations with most everyone here. here. Here's the deal. All you have to do is look around. Guys, go find another guy and say, hey, would you, would you help me follow Christ? You might have to ask one or two. I don't know. Sooner or later, you'll find one. Ladies, look around this room. The moment you feel alone or, or, or lonely or, or like you're on an island and you have no one that listens or no one that cares, you come here, you look around, and you will find people. Because this is how God faithfully has worked in the lives of countless saints, century after century after century, through relationships with one another. Or, or how about this? Who is it that you're helping to grow? Who is it that you're inviting for, for a weekly breakfast meeting or a cup of coffee? Who is it that you are praying for, that you are pursuing, and that you are caring for? And this is the way God works in our lives. God has faithfully loved many of us through other people in such obvious ways. Some of us maybe not the most obvious ways, yet this is, this is how we get back on track. Not only do we remember God faithfully lifting us into salvation, we remember God faithfully loving us through other people. And then continuing, we remember God faithfully led you to Christ in the midst of persecution. Now, I want to time out here for a second. Because the persecution the Thessalonians have experienced, I don't think many of us in this room experienced. If you read Acts 17 and you see the, the riot that is caused when Paul is preaching the gospel after three weeks and people start to believe and, and, and people describe, this, these men, they are turning the world upside down, saying there's another king and his name is Jesus and the town's in an uproar, and it's ready to stone Paul, and it's ready to stone Silas, and it's ready to beat up Jason. It even breaks down his door. And then Paul and his team, team they end up fleeing, and there's likely continued persecution. Maybe not physical, but at least, at least people were left out of social circles. They were ostracized, and they were marginalized. They were pushed away from families and away from economic and social opportunities. They experienced a real persecution. Many of us haven't experienced that. But I want you to see the way, the way God, he led them toward Christ and toward himself in that. Look, look with me. Back to chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. They suffered, and he says, For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Persecution from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly to be and with great desire to see you face to face. Look at, look at some of how this is, describes God's working in their lives, even as they deal with difficulty. It says they received the word. He says, you receive the word as it, what it really is, the very word of God. And it says that in that, they became imitators, imitators of those who were willing to face persecution. They followed in the long line of those who were willing, who, of those who would rather be persecuted because of their trust in Christ than to give in and be accepted by the world. Ultimately, they shared in suffering. Now, maybe you've never experienced suffering for Christ. Maybe you, you kind of live on cloud nine, and, and when you follow Christ, there's no pushback from your family. But if you experience pushback from your family, you know what it's like. Maybe you work in an environment, and you've worked in an environment all your life where it's completely safe to be a Christian, and you can talk about Jesus openly, or maybe you work in an environment that is opposed to Christ, and you know what it's like to be pressured into being quiet and, and, and tuning down your voice and making sure you never say anything that's going to make anyone uncomfortable because you're speaking about your Lord. If, if you know you know. But, but here's the point. If you sit here and you say, I, I haven't experienced much, much, much persecution, you can see the example of God's faithfulness in the lives of those who have. And if you sit in here and you say, man, I, I do feel it from time to time, you can be solidified. You can be back on track as you remember God's faithfulness even in your difficulty. See, if you want to get back on track, here's where it starts. First of all, you remember God's past faithfulness. But let's keep going. Let's get into chapter 3. Can you believe it? We've already covered two chapters. Well, let's, let's remember chapter 3. Chapter 3, we don't just remember God's past faithfulness, but in chapter 3, you see a rejoicing in God's present work. Chapter 3, it moves beyond remembering, and it begins to rejoice in God's present work. Let me show you how this works. First of all, there's a rejoicing that God is maturing you so that you can strengthen others. Can you rejoice in that? Can you rejoice in how God is changing your life, making you more like Christ, not so you can just be like, ah, I'm doing pretty good following Jesus. He is maturing you for for the purpose of strengthening others. Jump into chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. Paul was in a different place, and he sent Timothy to go check on them. He says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to do what? Two things. To establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter 
had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Look, here, here's the rejoicing we see. Paul is rejoicing. The big picture is because he sends Timothy to do two things, to establish and to, to, to exhort or encourage them in their faith. Timothy's going to return and he's going to report that the Thessalonians, they're on track. They haven't turned from Christ but but look at look at the in this big picture the, the rejoicing is that Timothy goes there with the express purpose to establish and to exhort other believers if, if we were to step aside and we were to look at Timothy's life, Timothy's biography, we would see Timothy maturing as he follows Paul, and now Timothy's matured to the point. Look at this. He's matured to the point where he gets a special assignment. He gets to go back to Thessalonica, and he gets to go there. Remember these words? To establish and to exhort. To establish is to solidify, to strengthen, to, to, give, to give kind of a foundation to. His job was to strengthen other believers, and then along with that, to exhort. Remember we said this, this is the picture of encouragement. Not just, you better do it, but coming alongside and pouring his life into those people in Thessalonica. But Paul's going to rejoice in this. And if you want to be back on track, you don't just say, I remember how God's loved me in the past. If you want to be back on track, I want you to realize the next part of that is to rejoice in God's present work, specifically in the way he brings us together in community. You know, a Christian who is separated from, from a healthy church, a Christian that is separated from a, a church that speaks from the scripture and that lifts up Christ every week, a Christian that is separated from that is a very weak Christian. It's a Christian that isn't being established. It's a Christian that isn't being encouraged or exhorted. This is, this is why we say church is essential. Church isn't non-essential. Church is vital. It's core to who we are because this is how God helps us to mature one another. God is maturing you. He's maturing you in one of two ways. He's either maturing you by the work of someone else who is encouraging you and strengthening you. He's got someone who is pouring into your life. Or the second way is he is maturing you because you are already strong enough that you can encourage someone else. Whether you're in seat A or seat B, God is maturing you. And most of us, we sit in both seats from time to time. Most of us, we go from seat A with one person and seat B with the other person, finding encouragement and then giving encouragement. This is how God matures us. But keep going. God, God doesn't just mature you so you can strengthen others. Secondly, God is maturing you to stand fast in Christ. Verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Time out. He says, Timothy brought such a great report. He says, you guys, you're, you're on track. Verse 7. For this reason, reason, brothers, in all our distress 
and affliction. We have been comforted about comfort, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Look at verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I think Paul gives us an incredible insight into his, his mindset here. Verse 8 is, it's, it's, a, it's a landmark verse. He says, for now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord. Let me, let me get a little heady with you for a moment. What is the point to any of life if you're not standing fast in the Lord? What is the point to all of our endeavors of fun and entertainment and success if we're not standing fast in the Lord? What is the point of all of the challenges that we faced, specifically these last 19 months, if, if we're not standing fast in the Lord? You know, recently we've returned to, to all these debates about that masks and vaccines. And it's, it, to be honest, it's, it's super discouraging to be right back where it seems like we were, you know, 16, 18, 18 months ago when we were having the same exact conversations about masks. It's, it's amazing to see how easy we can divide with each other. The maskers are mad at the non-maskers. The non-maskers are mad at the maskers. And, and is any of that matter at all if we're not standing fast in the Lord? The lack of love and consideration from both sides. Let me just be personal here for a moment. The last, you know, 10 weeks before I got back and started to be able to preach and, and uh, watching all of this debate and all of the arguing and, it, and not being able to preach, even now today, <laughs> like, struggling to have any energy all day and, and feeling super discouraged and, and yet coming to a spot where you read a text like this, a, a text like verse 8, listen to it again. For now we live if you were standing fast in the Lord. The, the line that came to my mind this afternoon, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is what God's maturing you toward. This is, what, this is what Paul wanted to see happen in the lives of the Thessalonians. He said, my life, the only way it really matters is if you are standing fast in the Lord. Let me tell you what, my life, the only way it really matters is if you are standing fast in the Lord. Let me tell you this, your life, the only way it really matters is if you are encouraging and strengthening and equipping others who can now stand fast 
in the Lord. This is a very sobering truth, church. We can get all wrapped up with all the secondary things that the enemy wants to use to rip a church apart, and I've seen it happen, and some of it's even happened in our church. Yet, what really matters is if we're standing fast in the Lord. This is this is what God's doing. This is, this is why we rejoice in how God is working right now in the middle of whatever affliction, in the middle of whatever suffering, in the middle of whatever challenge, and in the middle of whatever difficulty you face. God is maturing you so you can stand fast in the Lord. That's not the only thing God's doing, though. He's maturing you to strengthen uh, and, uh, and encourage others. He's, in, he's maturing you to stand fast in the Lord. But we remembered in chapter 3, at the very end of it, God is maturing you also to pray effectively. You remember this prayer? I think, I think we spent a whole week just on these, these two verses. He, here's what it says, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. He says, Now may our God and Father himself... But Paul just breaks into prayer. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. We, we, we spent a week talking about what effective prayer looks like, if you remember. And we simply said effective prayer in this prayer right here, it has two core components, one of which is, is praying for God's will. He says, may God direct our way to you. Paul recognizes God hasn't done it up to this point, but he's still praying for God's will, for, for God to, to move in their lives. And the second is for God's love to abound. And this is, this is a great pattern for you to pray tonight. When you go home tonight, before you, before you turn off the light, before you, you, you go to sleep, God, will you, will you direct my life so I can be lined up with your will? Will you direct my, my coming and my going? Will you direct my thinking and my, and my attitude and my words so I can be in the center of what you desire? Not only that, though, God, will you... Will you allow me to abound in love? Would your friends at work describe you as someone who abounds in love? Would your family members, you know, when, the, when the, you get home and the door's closed and, you, you know, no one knows what's going on inside there, would your family members describe you as someone who abounds in love? If not, this isn't, I'm pointing my finger at you. If not, this is an invitation to mature through effective prayer. What would happen if you, every night, you said, God, help me to love my wife better or my husband better. God, help me to love my children better. God, help me to love my church better. God, help me to love my coworkers better. God, help me to love even the coworkers that I can't stand Help me to love them better. This is how God is, meant, is attempting, is working, is maturing you right now. This is how you get back on track. You get back on track by remembering God's past faithfulness. You get back on track by rejoicing in God's present work. And, and then finally, 
You get back on track when you ready yourself for God's future work. As we get into later chapters and toward the end of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to talk about end times. We're going to have some fun conversations, aren't we? We're going to talk about the end. Yet, as we prepare, prepare for that, we see this encouragement to, to ready yourself for the work of God and what's going to come in the end. You ready yourself, first of all, by aiming to please God. This is, this is another just two-verse two message. And this is one that, uh, actually, I preached it online. I, I, I pre-recorded it because this is the one I was going to preach when I got back from, from the mission trip. Remember these verses? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. We talked, I'll just be brief here. The idea of walking here is the representative of the entirety of your life. He's not talking about how long your stride is or if you shuffle your feet or if you drag your foot as someone they were coming in today and I said, you're dragging your feet, right? He's not talking about how you physically walk. He's talking about the entire manner of your life. He's saying live a life that pleases God, that grows in the way every day that you please God. So you, you ready yourself by making your aim, saying I am going to please God. Is, is that your aim today? When you, when you look down the scope of your life and you get a target, is it I'm going to please God or is it I'm going to please self? I'm going to please people or I'm going to please God. Ready yourself by aiming to please God and secondly, ready yourself by growing in holiness. Stephen Hall shared this passage. Chapter, chapter four, verses three through eight. For this is the will of God. Time out. Anytime you see so statements so bold and so obvious in Scripture, you, you need to pay special attention. What's the will of God? Who should I marry? What job should I have? What should I eat for dinner? God, what's your will? I don't know. If you want to know the will of God, look right here. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your growth in holiness. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality, from sexual sin, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives the Holy Spirit. He says, if you disregard God's teaching on sexual purity, you're not arguing with the pastor. You're arguing with God himself. See, see, the Thessalonians, Paul left so quickly that they were left thinking that Jesus was going to come back anytime, and Jesus certainly can come back anytime. But in that, there was potentially the, 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 kind of the, the, the inkling that says, oh, you know, Jesus is coming back. Nothing really matters. 
So let's act however we want. Let's have a good old time pursuing the lust and the passions of the flesh. But here's the deal. The point Paul makes here, it's not Jesus is coming back, nothing matters. The point Paul is making here is Jesus is coming back, everything matters. Everything about your life right now, the entirety, how you live, how you act, how you talk, how you think, and the whole totality of all you are, all of it matters and all of it should be holy. So he says to ready yourself by aiming to please God, ready yourself by growing in holiness, and finally ready yourself by continuing in love. Andrew shared these verses, verses 9 through 12. He says, now concerning brotherly love, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. This is the idea of abounding in love again. Verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you for so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be and be dependent on no one. He expands this idea of love. And he actually describes two aspects of it. To live a quiet life. This is the idea of not living a life full of drama. Not causing problems with everyone that you interact with. Not being, not being uh, intending to argue and have your way all the time. In fact, on the end of that, he tacks on the idea of living properly toward outsiders. It's, simply put, it's having a good reputation. He said, love results in you having a good reputation. And the second aspect of this is to be productive. He says to work hard. Don't be dependent on others. Remember the, the thought, oh, Jesus is coming back. I'll just, I'll just uh, mooch off of the rich Christians right now and I won't do any work, right? I'll just, I'll just kind of do it, you know, I'll eat at someone else's table. No, no. He says, be productive. Don't be dependent on, any, on anyone. Again, it's not Jesus is coming back so nothing matters. It's Jesus is coming back so everything matters. This is... Now, we're just doing a broad brushstroke this evening. But this is how you can get back on track tonight. Let me ask you. Are you on track? Have you veered off? Have you taken the wrong road? Have you been walking down the wrong path? I'm going to actually ask you right now to just take a moment. Close your eyes. Consider your standing before the Lord. Consider your pursuit of Christ and the things of God. If you realize you're off track in major ways or in small ways, let me, let me just walk you through how to get back on track. Will you, will you start by remembering God's faithfulness that he's already worked in your life? Will you, will you tonight just remember that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to die to pay the price for all your sin? Will you take a moment and remember when you repented of your sin and you turn in faith and in, in love and in trust toward Jesus? Not only that, will you 
will you rejoice in how God is working in your life even now? Isn't it amazing that even when we, we find ourselves on the wrong track, God's still working in our lives? He's still calling you to maturity, to love, to holiness. Will you, will you just take this moment and thank the Lord? Say, God, thank you that you don't give up on me. And, and, and even now, right now in this moment, will you begin to ready yourself for what God's going to do next? Maybe what he's doing next is his return. Maybe what he's doing next is simply the, the next step of your growth. But would you do that by right now turning away from your sin? Turn, le, turning away and letting go of whatever it is you're holding on to that's, that's keeping you from being near the Lord. And as you do that, let me pray for us. Father, what a, what a glorious night to remember that even when we get off track, you, you have a path laid out that, that turns us around and calls us back to you. And God, I pray that you would search each of our hearts and minds. I pray that you would reveal the places where we, we've gone wayward, where we're off track. And in that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember what Christ has done. You would help us to rejoice that even we're here tonight together with you. And God, you would turn us so that we would begin to live lives of holiness and love moving forward. Lord, we, we confess we, we easily get off track but we rejoice in these nights where we get to remember how good you are. Father, I pray that in your goodness and in your kindness, you draw us all back to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.